0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank The International Leaders' Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting and The Pledge Radio in Michigan. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardoch, economist and co-founder of the U.S.-based International Leaders' Summit, a think tank dedicated to strengthening the rule of law, advancing economic freedom, and securing peace through strength. Through America's Roundtable, we have the privilege of talking to leaders across America and with allies and nations supportive of principal policies. During the season, we're focusing on principal leadership through the coronavirus pandemic, a deadly virus that originated from Wuhan, China. This weekend, we're delighted to host a special guest on America's Roundtable. The Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO is Vice President for Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Mr. McTeague serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit. McTeague has testified on Capitol Hill and published articles in many major media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Businessweek, U.S. News and World Report, and the Chicago Tribune. In Washington, D.C., McTeague advised the White House Office of Management and Budget and most federal agencies on issues of accountability and transparency and has consulted with legislators and governors in more than 30 states. A former cabinet minister and member of parliament in his native New Zealand, McTeague, was one of the architects of the New Zealand Miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven pro-growth policies. He later became New Zealand's ambassador to Canada and received the prestigious Queen's Service Order in recognition of his public service from Queen Elizabeth II. A special welcome to you, Mr. McTeague.
1: Welcome, Mr. McTeague. Thank you very
2: much, Natasha and Joel. Very happy to be joining you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much indeed, Mr. McTeague. We have been observing Sweden's strategy of keeping its economy open during the COVID-19 pandemic, encouraging social distancing and providing guidelines to businesses And in Germany, we have noticed manufacturing facilities were still running at full speed with clear safety guidelines presented by Chancellor Angela Merkel, a scientist herself. In light of what we're seeing here in the United States, what are your thoughts regarding America's slow-paced phased reopening of the economy? Uh, in light of the fact that most areas across the nation were not impacted to the extent of, say, New York City or other densely populated areas?
2: I think that your ability to be able to deal with a crisis is predetermined by the amount of planning and preparation that we did on before the crisis occurred. And what happened in the United States was that there was a level of panic and there was also very significant shortages of things that leaders had been warned about on many occasions after other pandemics, that they needed more protective clothing, they needed more respirators, uh, they needed to have plans for how they dealt with uh, a sick population, and those things had just not been done. Uh, So that meant that lockdown was the option. Lockdown is not a cure for COVID-19. All it does is slow down the contamination rate. So then when people start to go back to work and start to socialize again, uh, there is some risk. But there's also a major risk to shutting down an economy because you may finish up uh, swapping health concerns for poverty and that doesn't help
0: anyone.
1: In just two months since the new coronavirus led to widespread business closures in mid-March, more than 36 million Americans have filed unemployment claims. After reaching a weekly peak of 7 million at the end of March, the numbers are slowly subsiding. Uh, Business closures have hurt big businesses, small businesses, entrepreneurs and employees. The stimulus package was intended to help hurting businesses and individuals and prevent further contraction of the economy. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, CARES Act, is the largest fiscal care package in modern American history, totaling $2.2 trillion dollars. And it's comprised of sending individuals direct checks in low and middle class income categories, earmarked $349 billion for small businesses, which was replenished with additional $300 uh, billion. Some 25% of the CARE stimulus, some $500 billion, are aimed to for big businesses, including airline industries and those considered essential to national security. And the remaining funds estimated that some $425 billion will be administered through a Federal Reserve emergency lending system, similar to the one during the financial crisis of the previous administration. Now, Federal Reserve slashed interest rates to zero. Um, Mr. McTeague, do you think that the stimulus package and the steps taken by the central bank and the government have achieved what was hoped for, to stall the coronavirus-induced economic downturn and job losses caused by the lockdowns?
2: Well, let me start by just saying it's almost exactly three months ago, in early February, that all of the three major stock indexes hit record highs that unemployment was at historic lows, especially for African-American and Hispanic-Americans, and that there were 30% more job vacancies than there were unemployed. So it wasn't the economy that was sick. What actually happened was that the government shut down the economy, and most of the things that were driving growth at that time uh, should reoccur when the economy opens up. Uh, So my view about stimulus is that stimulus should be uh, available to help to reduce the harm to individuals and to businesses so that the economy can get back on its feet again as quickly as possible. Uh, And when you look at the level of unemployment at the moment, it's a false number because millions of those people are people who will have jobs as soon as the economy opens again. It's not like it was, uh, say, in 2009 when whole segments of uh, of industry were shut down more or less permanently as economic factors led to that happening. This time, uh, it was something else that led to it happening. So I would expect as the economy opens, we should see those unemployment numbers reverse very quickly as people get back the jobs that they had before. And part of the stimulus was really designed to actually... Try and keep the linkage between people who had been working and their employers so that when the economy opened again, employers would have employees and employees would have jobs. That's only just starting to happen now. And I would expect to see those numbers reverse very quickly as major segments of the economy reopen.
1: As one of the authors who was behind the U.S. Transparency and Government Accountability Act, what are your thoughts? How will taxpayers be informed about the stimulus spending in order to sanction and eventually prevent abuses in spending taxpayer funds?
2: When you have a massive operation like this, there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be misappropriations, and there are going to be people who will seek to advantage themselves from that process. The overall and the overarching criteria should be to get the economy up and don't do things that are going to make it impossible for that to happen by being overly bureaucratic in dealing with the stimulus operation. Certainly go after people who behave badly, but get the economy going as quickly as possible and sort those problems out as you go along rather than deciding that. What we need is a, a recovery czar who's going to decide on what everybody can do. I think that could be a massive disaster.
1: Yes, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the purpose of the stimulus is to get economy back on its feet. And the most recent comments, uh, one of them was from Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, uh, who urged the White House and Congress to spend more money to ensure their initial response to the coronavirus-induced economic downturn isn't squandered. And then the House Democrats just unveiled a new three trillion coronavirus relief bill, which includes relief for state and local governments, new direct payments and hazard pay for essential workers in order to limit the long term economic damage. And also based on your earlier response to get the economy back on its feet sooner, is there a need and would you suggest additional funding through stimulus? And who should be their beneficiaries?
2: At the moment, I think that we have more than enough stimulus, Uh, certainly more than enough to start to get the economy back on its feet again. And then the approach should be to look at problems as they arise and address them on one-off basis. What needs to be taken into account by decision-makers, in my view, is that stimulus should be about repairing the damage that's occurred as a result of COVID-19. It shouldn't be to cure problems that were pre-existing. In other words, states that have made a bad job of managing their economies, cities that haven't fully funded their pension schemes, uh, and individuals who had businesses that were already in dire straits should not look at this as a rescue package for them. It should be to... actually counter the effect of the downturn that comes as a result of COVID-19, and it shouldn't be a bailout for everybody who's been managing badly in uh, in the past. We should allow the market to deal with that as it normally would. Uh, so I think that a, the most recent proposals by uh, the House uh, for another $3 trillion are wish list items and have little or nothing to do with the uh, effect of the virus and the pandemic, and they certainly shouldn't be actioned until such time as the economy starts to move again and we can see where there are specific problems that need to be addressed. So in my view, no more stimulus until June at the earliest. I think that there's an enormous amount that can be learned from the management of this particular crisis. During my lifetime, I've never ever seen anything that in any way resembles the crisis that we're going through at the moment. It's entirely caused by governments making the decisions that they should shut down the economy uh, to protect people from contamination. I can accept that that might have been a reasonable decision, given that there weren't any other things available at that time. However... No businesses or individuals really prior prepare for the fact that 100% of their revenues or their income is going to be turned off sort of instantaneously. And being able to help cope with that, I think, was essential. And the stimulus in a number of ways should actually address those issues. Now, for a period of time, a number of employers continued to pay their employees even though there was no revenue coming in. But you can't do that for very long, particularly if you have an uh, employee-intense business. Uh, So I think that those approaches were reasonable. Now we're getting into the things that I think are long-existing problems in the economy and should not be addressed by uh, way of stimulus that's sort of shrouded around COVID-19 as the rationale for it. Bad management is bad management, and there should be a price for it, and the price in the marketplace is that if you manage your business badly, then you go bankrupt. And uh, I think that that's the market's cleansing mechanism, should be allowed to happen. However, I also think that given that you have this emergency stop, uh, there's a whole lot of things that we'll need to readjust. So supply chains will be damaged. It will take time for them to get up to speed. And we may see some um, changes in pricing uh, as people place higher priorities on some goods and services and lower priorities on others. All of those things should be allowed to happen because that's the way in which we will get uh, the economy back on track quickest. The worst option would be to decide that bureaucrats can make those decisions better than entrepreneurs and we would have something that's going to last for years.
1: So you project that we're going to get back to pre-coronavirus economy at a faster pace?
2: I don't know anybody who knows the answer to that question. I know enormous numbers of people who are guessing because we don't know how the world market is going to respond as economies across the world start to re-energize themselves. However, given that this crisis is not caused by economic conditions, but rather by a health conditions that caused us to take extraordinary actions, I see no reason why we shouldn't be going back towards the level of activity that we had in January. But we're not going to get there uh, in two or three weeks. So over the next year, I believe that we will regain most of the momentum that we had at the beginning of 2020. And we will certainly see ourselves on course to be regaining all of that momentum, if not by the end of 2020, then um, early in 2021. And I think markets and people will respond positively to that. It's an interesting phenomenon that we see at the moment, but lots of people are now getting entirely frustrated because they aren't able to work and uh, they have a desire to get back to work. The vast majority of people also have a natural desire to provide for themselves rather than to be dependent upon somebody else for that provision. All of those are big positives uh, that I think are going to see us move into a period of quite rapid growth as the economies of the different states start to open again.
0: Mr. McTeague, uh, the supply chain has been under the spotlight uh, as America and a number of Western European countries, larger economies, were dependent on certain countries such as China and how... Just because of what we've seen with restrictions of certain products and items coming out of China, that has been brought to the forefront. Uh, There is this notion of discussing regional supply chains and less dependency on China. Uh, From your experiences and your efforts in advising leaders in government and various countries around the world, including the United States, what would you suggest in regard to the supply chain? and the dependency that we have at the moment on China.
2: I have huge levels of confidence in markets being able to solve economic problems. And we have the supply chain mechanisms that are in place now because markets over time have found that this particular supplier can supply these things more regularly and better quality and at a better price. I do not think that we should try and arbitrarily interfere in that process. We should allow those markets to be able to solve those particular problems. We now see across the world different countries uh, working together to be able to put their expertise into the production of consumer goods. I think that's a good thing. We used to see that inside countries where different regions would become good at actually producing some of the components that would go into parts, so they idea of having a, an industry that was built around the same kind of concepts that Henry Ford had, that you would build everything on the one site, uh, has gradually been replaced over time by different enterprises being able to contribute to that because they have found better, had more reliable and higher quality ways of actually doing those tasks. We have to let that continue to happen. I think that you can look at how you plan strategically, uh, and for example, if you are consuming huge levels of a particular product, do you have all of it linked into just-in-time delivery or do you have some of it that's stockpile? like the kind of things that we needed at the beginning of this crisis but didn't have? Should you actually have a, a strategic reserve of uh, medication? Should you have a strategic reserve of protective clothing Should you have a strategic reserve of health hardware that's going to be essential in another crisis? I think there's probably some arguments that say that those things should should happen. But I don't think that we should actually try and interfere in the market to reorchestrate supply chains because, frankly, it will be a disaster.
1: So you don't think that we should uh, rethink our reliance on China based on their delayed response in in informing us about the spread of coronavirus and basically because of their dominant position in many industries and even even investments as we see it coming in Europe?
2: I don't think that we should pick on China just because it is China we should change our relationships with China if they are not able to meet the criteria that we need for the supply of goods and services. The second part of that question really is what happened at the beginning of this pandemic? And I think the answer was that leaders did not do a good job of managing. Part of that was the World Health Organization, which I think let the world down very badly in that it decided that it would play international politics with information rather than doing its job, which is to put out there early cautions to uh, people and to countries that there was a big problem on the horizon that could have a major effect on them. I think there needs to be some reforming of those kind of institutions, particularly the institutions that are responsible for producing data. We're getting some very bad data. We also need... To some education into, in my view, you shouldn't use data if it doesn't, if it's not complete and it doesn't give you a full picture. Uh, for example, in the United States at the moment, if you look at one of the figures that's in the papers every day, it looks at the recovery rate. It says that the recovery rate from COVID in the United States is about 25%. The recovery rate in other places is about um, somewhere between 35 and 40%. Why is it so bad in the United States? Frankly, because people don't actually count the number of people who recovered from the virus. They count the numbers who are sick and they count the numbers who have died. So why do we put that other information out there? It just distorts the picture. And in many ways, I think that we uh, are going to have to look at how data is put together uh, and how it is actually authenticated when it's used to try and form and inform Uh, public opinions.
1: Uh, Well, we would like to also ask you one question, actually, the positive outlook of New Zealand. Could you kindly share with our listeners about New Zealand's largely successful battle against the spread of coronavirus?
2: Yes, I'm happy to do that. The government of New Zealand acted very aggressively by world standards at the beginning uh, of the coronavirus, and it probably took actions that were among the toughest in the world. Are they the very best. Not sure about that because I think that you could argue that the approach taken by Sweden is equally successful. Anyway, what the New Zealand government did was that it um, immediately stopped the inflow of people from overseas. All inward travellers went into compulsory 14-day quarantine, regardless of whether they had COVID symptoms or not. That included returning citizens and visitors. All inward travel was terminated shortly after that with only um, inward travel under extraordinary circumstances. That didn't include something like you had a relative that died. Uh, That was too bad, you would just have to wait until such time as uh, you met the criteria for quarantine. Families were confined to what was described as their bubble. Uh, You had to designate one person from within the bubble who would do the shopping. Uh, you weren't allowed to leave your property except for exercise reasons. you could go work walking within your neighbourhood, but everything else was totally shut down. Uh, you couldn't move outside of your own geographic region. New Zealand's now into the third week of opening up the economy. They have it staged in in four different stages. The highest level of um, of restraint was uh, was level four. They're now down to level two starting today. Over the whole of the pandemic, there were 1,147 cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand and 21 deaths, which was very low by world standards. Right. And is probably due to having taken these actions very quickly and making them much more arbitrary than they have been in other places. I think we're going to spend a lot of time with a lot of researchers looking at how you handle pandemics and what we can do better next time. Because having to take the option of shutting down an entire economy is not acceptable. There have to be better solutions than that.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable, we've been joined by the Honourable Maurice McTeague, QSO. He's the Vice President for Outreach at the Mercator Center at George Mason University. And Mr. McTeague serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit. A former cabinet member and member of parliament in his native New Zealand, McTeague was one of the architects of the New Zealand Miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven driven pro-growth policies. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. We really appreciated your insights and your ideas on what America and the rest of the world needs to do in moving forward.
1: Thank you, Mr. McDee.
0: Thank
2: you very much, Joel. Thank you very much, Nastasha. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.